As you're finding your seats, you can open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardbound one somewhere around you. And this morning's passage can be found on page 911. It will also be on the screen behind us. I do want to um, just add my welcome if I haven't had a chance to meet you. My name is Chad, and it's an honor that you would be with us uh, on a holiday weekend. I mean, I always say that on a holiday weekend, if you're here, you get a free ticket into heaven. So thanks for making time out of your schedule to be here. Um, yeah, I mean, and that you would come and that you would be in this room and that you would allow me to preach to you for the next two hours says something about who you are as people. That's a joke. Unless you get me going. All right. Um, Acts chapter 2. Um, uh, I was on vacation uh, a couple of weeks back, and I read just a really small book called Chop Wood and Carry Water. And um, it's, this, it's this really simple but profound little book, and it talks about just the, the little things that we do in the process of becoming great. Now, most of it's applied in a business or a sports kind of context, but it tells the story of, a, of an American boy named John who grows up and he wants to be a samurai archer. So John has always idolized the, the samurai, and so he ends up moving to Japan. And as he moves to Japan, he encounters a sensei, and he can't wait to just get out and get on the archery range and start perfecting his skills. But his sensei says, hey, this, there's some modern conveniences here in this village But everybody that's a part of this community, every day, all morning, whether it's rain, whether it's sun, whether it's cold outside, chops wood and carries water. So he was really disappointed. And really the story is about the next 10 years of his life and how he discovers just the the reality that every little thing matters. That it's all of the small things that add up to the big things. It's how you breathe and it's how you carry yourself and even chopping wood and carrying carrying water is part of the process of becoming just this great samurai archer and so um, it's a it's an interesting read and um, what's profound about this book uh, for us as Americans is oftentimes we can think that uh, change is instantaneous right there's this American idea that um change happens in the big things. So if you want to be rich, right, what do you do? You throw a party and you invite all of your friends and you try to sell them something and then get their friends to try to sell you something and then I'll instantly change, right, your life forever. Or if you want to lose weight, right? I mean, it's not about diet or exercise. It's about a magic pill that can make it all go away. Like as Americans, we think it's our right to change instantaneously. But it's really the things that we give ourselves to over and over that make the biggest difference. So I'll use, for instance, a healthy family and a healthy marriage. It's not really made up of big, grand gestures. It's made up of thousands of little conversations that values the other person, that works through things that are difficult, right? Healthy churches, in a similar way, are not built primarily on great moments, although I love great moments. I love when, I think we had one this morning where, I mean, God was speaking about freedom and power. God breaks into those moments. But what makes healthy churches is what churches are devoted to. 
So what are the things that they're going to give themselves to over and over again? So this morning we're going to look at Acts chapter 2 and we're going to see what the early church was devoted to. And, and we want to ask ourselves, what are the things for us as a church that are going to be non-negotiable? What are we going to build our lives on? What's going to be at the center of our discipleship? What's going to be at the center of our mission? What's going to be at the center of our worship service? How are we going to accomplish all those things? And to find the answer, we're going to read that in Acts chapter 2. We're going to read verses 42 through 47. And if you have your Bibles open and you're able, would you stand with me? I mean, just stand because these are the most important words that are going to be spoken here this morning. We want to give reverence to his word. Acts 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and, and the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you may be seated. Would you please pray with me? Father, just reading your word and the description of the early church, there's so much inside of us, I think, that longs for a community like this where all comes upon every soul, where it's not just about checking off the box, but where it's about encountering you as you are and sharing that with one another in the world. Father, that's our deepest desire as your people. I pray that you would help us this morning to be devoted to the things that you want us to be devoted to. I pray that you help us to be faithful in the small things so that you can increase just our effectiveness both as individuals and as a church. To do that, we need you to send the Spirit to help us. I need your help to proclaim this word. I am nothing apart from you. But also we need you to send your spirit to help to apply this to our hearts because we all come in here in different walks and seasons of life with different backgrounds. I pray you do what only you can do and make us into one body, one people, one Lord, one spirit, and one baptism. Only you can do that. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts chapter 2 is all about devotion. It's a snapshot of the early church, what they were devoted to. So this is both descriptive in a sense that it describes what life in the early church was like, um, but it's also prescriptive in the sense that um, when you look at this church, like, I mean, if, if, I, if you just put this, take all marketing aside, like if, if I saw this church, I'm signing up for this church, right? I mean, there's all. The Spirit is at work. Miracles are being performed. There's teaching going on. There is life and there is fullness of joy. There's glad and generous hearts. I mean, deep down, right, when we read that, we know that that's what we are made for. That's what we long for. We know that that Christian relationships are supposed to be a little bit deeper than just a casual interaction on a Sunday morning. We know that it's supposed to be better than just um, 
some light conversation around some chips and dips on a Wednesday night, we know that if this is true, what we're talking about, that Jesus actually was raised from the dead, that it should make a difference in how we live out our lives with one another. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. There's, this is a picture for us of what fruitfulness actually looks like. Now, I don't want you to make a mistake. I mean, I mean the book of Acts is messy. Um, this beautiful picture of the church, it, it only takes a couple of chapters and just there's real division and heresy breaks into the church. So there's no amount of the things that we're going to be devoted to that's going to protect us from all forms of sin and harm. But we do, as we are launching our gospel communities, um, that's just our discipleship structure. How, what are the things that we're going to be devoted to? How are we going to try to live those things out? So I want to give you a snapshot of, of what it means for us as the people of God to be devoted. Now, there's a lot of different angles we could look at this passage from. We could look at the Spirit's power. We could look at fellowship together. But there's one aspect, I think, that holds this whole passage together, that if we devote ourselves Two, will help us both in our discipleship, it'll help us in our mission, um, it'll help us in the way that we relate to God, in the way that we relate to one another. And it's just that small phrase, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, it's just one phrase, but I think that in the New Testament is shorthand for the gospel, right? The apostles' teaching is everything that they learned from Jesus as he was walking with the apostles for three years, the things that he proclaimed, the things that he demonstrated. They devoted themselves to Jesus' message and they devoted themselves to Jesus' way of life. Both of those things go together. Now, the question that we're going to ask ourselves for the rest of the time here this morning is how do we keep the gospel central in gospel community, right? It's very intentional that we don't call it just a community group, right? Community is great, but community only works if Jesus is at the center and Jesus touches every aspect of a community's life together. So we're going to talk about and define the gospel together as a group of people because we want to make sure that we're all on the same page of what this good news is. And then we're going to try to apply it to our discipleship and our mission. Oftentimes the gospel is described like a diamond, right? So it's I remember the, the process of going into a jeweler as a 23-year-old and wanting to buy the perfect engagement ring for my wife. And, I mean, you can imagine, I was in a mall. So it wasn't a, quite a kiosk, but it was just a step up from a kiosk. And I had no idea. And they, you know, basically walked me through the process and say, well, if you want to appreciate the color, you put it up against a, a black velvet piece of cloth. And if you want to uh, appreciate the cut and the clarity, I mean, they got out this, you know, this, the, the thing that you use uh, from Monopoly, a, a monocle or something, and he was checking it out and, and selling it to me. And you were able to appreciate the, the, the diamond, not just as you look at it, but to appreciate it, you have to look at it from a lot of different angles. So there's only one message of the gospel. More accurately, if somebody asks you what the gospel is or who the gospel is, the gospel is Jesus Christ. It's all that he did, all that he promised to do, 
through his birth, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension, and his promise to empower his church and to come back and make everything new. That's the message of the gospel. But we're going to look at it this morning from three different perspectives because just like a diamond, you can't fully appreciate it um, in just by looking at it from one angle. And so we want to make sure that we're able to appreciate just the beauty and the clarity of the gospel. Now, the gospel literally means good news. <laughs> and it's deeper than just good news, right? Because we think that if we're going to have a good Labor Day weather forecast, that's good news, right? We think if you get a 10% off coupon in the mail to Gap, that's good news. But, but how this word is used in the New Testament This is life-altering news, right? So how it was originally used in the Bible was, like, if you were really sick, right? And and, and just imagine you are on your deathbed, and you don't think you're going to recover, and you get good news from the doctor, a clean bill of health. That's gospel good news, right? It also is used um, in the ancient world when people would fight wars, like, those things would have massive implications on the city. So they would send a messenger, technically an evangelist, back to bring good news of a victory from the front. So these are life-altering things. So we're, when we're talking about keeping the gospel central, we're talking about how do we um, live in the good of the life, the death, the victory of Jesus Christ, both in our relationships and in our mission. This is not something that's just an introductory to the Christian faith. This is where life comes from. This is where power comes from. This is where transformation comes from. So we're going to look at three different perspectives this morning. And there's both blessing in looking at it this way, and there's also a potential danger if we look at the gospel maybe from just one of these perspectives. I'll use the example of my own role. So I am both a husband and a father and a pastor, right? So what happens if I overemphasize my role as a pastor? Like, I've done this lots of times, right? I mean, necessarily, my role as a husband and a father goes down, right? What happens if I overemphasize being a father and I just let my kids come in my room, snuggle up, lay in bed with us all night, What's going to happen? Well, I mean, my marriage is going to suffer in those moments, right? And I'm I'm going to be honest, like, I'm not going to be a very happy pastor the next day, like, if, you know, I just let my kids snuggle up all night with me in bed, right? So we have to look at all of these perspectives together, and we want to keep them in proportion so that we can be healthy and we can be balanced as we try to live out the gospel together. So let's begin to look at these three aspects of the gospel. This is, the first one is the one that everybody is most familiar with. It is Jesus is Savior, right? This is the aspect of the gospel that we're most familiar with. It is the legal perspective of the gospel. And the implication of this is that Jesus died in my place, right? The, the, the key scripture here is Isaiah 53, that Jesus died in my place for my sins As a substitute, I want to read Isaiah 53. I want you to listen to the personal language of Isaiah 53. It says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was laid the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. So this is a picture of Jesus as our substitute. And the result of this is forgiveness. Peace. Our guilt is taken away. Our guilt that we rightly earned by our own sin is laid on Christ and it's atoned for forever. Jesus is Savior. Most of us have grown up with this perspective of the Gospel and it is accurate. The result of this is peace, both that we have peace with God objectively as our judge and as the creator of the universe. But if you suffer from anxiety here this morning, the only way that you can have real peace that comes from God subjectively is to realize that you have peace with God objectively, that the wrath of God is satisfied, that you are completely and forever forgiven. But there also is a little bit of danger if we just look at the gospel from this perspective. The first one is individualism, right? Hear all that personal language in there, right? It can just be about my relationship with Jesus, my spiritual journey, right? Churches can become isolated and insulated from the world because, listen, we have peace with God, so we're good, right? Right? The, 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 difficulty here is to not just look at the gospel from this perspective alone. Also, if you shrink the gospel down to just this perspective, um, this is where we end up divorcing salvation from discipleship, right? So um, I hate to say this, but I have to say this so that we can learn and grow together. Most presentations of the gospel are little more than a used car salesman approach, right? I mean, it's it's basically like, here's the problem, here's the solution, do you want some, right? So as a group of people, we want to proclaim the gospel in a way that's holistic, that it makes sense. Um, I'm going to read, this is a long quote, but I think it's worth it, and it'll help you see. This is the spirit of the age, and this is honestly why most Christians are bored with their faith. Gay Blinds, in his book, The Next Christian, says this, You're probably familiar with the typical presentation of the gospel. It usually gets tacked onto sermons in the form of this fatal, somewhat fear-based question. If you were to die tonight, where would you spend eternity, in heaven or hell? And after a dramatic pause, the pastor presents the gospel like this. You are a sinner bound for hell, and Christ's death and resurrection can give you eternal life in heaven if you just believe. Now, this is true. This is a true message, okay? Now, while you may quibble with a word or two or wish there was a better way to phrase it, this is the gospel told by many American Christians. They believe that it is the foundational assertion of, of, of the Bible driving the motivation for everything that they do. And this presentation of the gospel is what invites criticism. The next Christians, and that's just a term that he uses for people that are looking at the gospel from more than one angle, claim that the beginning... God's goodness throughout creation and the ending, the restoration of all things, of the greater story have been conveniently cut out, leaving modern-day Christians with an incoherent understanding of the gospel. Many are now bound to a gospel story with a 
climax that sounds quite boring. Go tell others how to escape planet Earth, and that doesn't feel very much like a compelling mission to them. Although technically accurate, the next Christians argue that it misses the larger point. They suggest that this telling of the gospel only includes half of God's story. By truncating or making the full narrative smaller, it reduces the power of God's redeeming work on the cross to just a ticket to a good afterlife, right? So we've all heard presentations of the gospel. Hey, if you believe this message, here's your ticket to heaven, right? Although God invites forgiveness this way, it is not the whole story. Did Jesus die only so we could get out of this place and go somewhere else? While the redemptive Christ event, and that's the cross, is the center or the apex of the story, it is not the whole story, right? So I may be messing with our worldviews a little bit. So I'm not saying that the Jesus as Savior is not true. It is absolutely true. The cross is absolutely central. Forgiveness is absolutely central. It's just not the only perspective of the gospel. So now, as we've paved the way, let's move on to our next um, perspective of the gospel. The next perspective we're going to look at, Jesus is King. This is the ethical or the behavioral aspects of the kingdom. Jesus came, and he said he came to announce a kingdom. Jesus is king over a kingdom. And this brings wholeness and healing, and we're talking about human flourishing. This is where engagement with the mission comes from. Right? This idea that Jesus has come to bring a whole new world to bear, that he's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords, and now we go forward as his ambassadors. Right? Can you notice the difference? Both of these things are true, and we have to hold them in tension. Jesus is both our Savior, but he's also our king. And this is what motivates us to fight injustice in our city. And this is what motivates us to go to the nations and go around the world. It's this idea that Jesus has brought a whole new way of living to bear on planet earth and we get to live in the good of it. Here's a couple of scriptures. Jesus told his disciples when they went out in Matthew chapter 10 verse 7. Listen, this is, he says, I want, he said, go out and proclaim as you go saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what happened after this is both Jesus and his disciples in the book of Acts began to perform signs and wonders and miracles. This wasn't just about people's souls, but this was about their bodies. This was about widows and orphans being cared for. This is about different groups of people and ethnicities coming together. All of this happens because Jesus is the King of Kings and He's reversing everything that sin has brought about. This is the good news of the kingdom of God. So we want to bring that perspective to bear. At the end of the book of Acts, this is what it says about Paul. He was in prison. It says, He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So there's good news. Jesus is both Savior and Jesus is King. And there is a new world that's here right now that we can live in the good of. And listen, this is not something that we're going to bring about by our own efforts, right? We have a chance to model and demonstrate that by our good works. But this message only goes forward and the kingdom only goes forward one heart and one life at a time. The kingdom expands as people put their faith in Jesus. 
The kingdom of God starts out the smallest of all seeds like a mustard seed, and it grows and expands to every people, every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation, because that is what God has designed for him to do. So the fruit of this is that we get in the game, right? I mean, this is not just a message about individual salvation. This is good news for our city. That Jesus wants to make his rule and his reign known in our city and break down walls of division that have existed for centuries here. Right? The good news is that the power of Jesus wants to come to bear through his people, and I'll be even more specific, through your gospel community that most of you have signed up for. He wants this to be an extension of his kingdom. Right? This isn't just about you getting together and having chips and dips in a neighborhood somewhere. Yes, we value relationships. But relationships are only helpful to the end that they help us with the mission of Jesus. This is about us being formed together as disciples of the kingdom of God. The danger of this um, would be just, I would say, you can have a, a naive form of optimism. Right? I mean, we've all been around people that just like, hey man, everything's going to work out, it's going to be okay. Optimism is good if it's touched brokenness, right? If it's rooted in faith in who Jesus is. But if we're naively optimistic about what God wants to do in this city, what it's going to do is squash the pain of people that we encounter, right? So we want to be aware that all the places that we're stepping into that are broken, these are real people with real stories. And yes, we want to see God come to work. But one of the first works of mission honestly, is God to open our eyes, and we're going to be talking about this as we go forward, God opening our eyes and breaking our hearts, right? Because we're not going to be very good missionaries like if our hearts are not broken for the brokenness that's in front of us. All of this is part of being a a disciple of the kingdom. Uh, Another danger is distraction, right? I'm, I'm reading a book right now just about pursuing justice in the world, and it talks about global issues that honestly I was unaware, right? And when you read about just the millions and millions of needs that are all around the globe, the hundreds and hundreds of needs that are just in our relational circle inside this room, you can be overwhelmed, right? Where do we start? So one of the, the main things for us as a, as a group of people that want to be disciples of the kingdom of God is to learn to hear from the king. Right? It's not that we're called to meet every single need, but God does have specific good works for us to walk in. So we have to learn to listen to the Spirit and learn to walk in the Spirit. Like we don't want to just start throwing darts on the board and hope something that sticks. Like we actually want to listen to Him and we want to follow Him. The great enemy of God's kingdom and being a disciple of the kingdom is materialism, right? It's building our own kingdom at the expense of God's kingdom. So he invites us, not as materialists, right, to hoard up things for ourselves, but to sow seeds into the kingdom of God to see Jesus' rule and his reign come to bear. So that is the good news that Jesus is the king. The third and final perspective we're going to look at this morning is Jesus is gracious, right? So this is the relational aspect of the gospel. And this is... (laughs) This is something that all of us need to hear over and over again. Jesus is gracious. 
He welcomes us. He invites us. That despite who we are and what we've done, we are as loved right now as Jesus is before the Father. I already read the scripture this morning in worship because it was so apt. But, but this is who our God is. Isaiah 30, verse 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. That's what we've just been talking about. Blessed are all those who wait for Him. So we want to be a people that wait for the mercy and the grace of God to appear. And that's fully happened in and through Jesus. And then this is the implication. Romans eight thirty one and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? So the implication of this is that God is for us. And there is no better news on the planet, right? You do not have to earn God's favor. You now possess forever by faith the favor of God. Everywhere that you walk, yes, God may discipline us for a season, but the reality is you will never lose the favor and the smile of God. Regardless of your emotional state here this morning, God is gracious and favorably disposed to you. And He's here this morning to remind us who we are as the people of God. That helps us to step out and to begin to bear fruit. Um, A potential danger... You can put the chart back up. Um, a potential danger of overemphasizing Jesus is gracious. Now, I've not seen a church do this, by the way. Like, right? I mean, in the South, this is, <laughs> yeah, this is almost unheard of. But you can misunderstand grace, and it can lead to passivity, right? So Jesus is gracious. So what do we do, right? I mean, so there just leads to a lack of excellence, where it's just like, hey, anything goes. But if you really understand Titus chapter 2, it says the grace of God has appeared, and that grace is a person whose name is Jesus. And the end of the verse says it makes you zealous for good works. So grace makes us zealous for good works. Good works doesn't make God gracious, but the reality is when we understand that God is gracious, it makes us zealous for good works. And God's concerns become our concerns. The great enemy of the truth that Jesus is gracious is religion. That you've got to earn it. That you've got to prove it. Right? And God wants to free us as the people of God to say, it is finished. And it, my friend Alan says this often, it is the finished work of the gospel that propels us to the unfinished work of the kingdom. Right? So Jesus has done it all, so we want to give it all away. So let's talk a little bit as we transition here. How do we play this out in our discipleship relationships? How do we play this out in a gospel community? The first is um, we share good news, not just good advice. We share good news, not just good advice. So imagine, right? We've all probably been in some kind of small group setting at some point, Sunday school class, something. And Billy Joe And Bobby Sue are a married couple. They're in your gospel community. Billy Joe is having a hard time at work. His boss is dealing harshly with him. He's being unfair to him. 
and it's caused some friction inside of the marriage. So good advice sounds like this, right? So we've all been there. It's not that some things aren't helpful and you don't want to be practical, but good advice sounds like, hey, I have a buddy that just has a startup and he's looking for somebody with your skill set, right? Maybe helpful in that situation, but that's not good news for Billy Joe's soul, right? Another good advice kind of response would be, hey, I read a book about how to deal with really difficult people. You should read it, right? That's good advice. But what does good news sound like for Billy Joe, for Bobby Sue, as they're sitting inside gospel community, right? Because, listen, honestly, like, if we do that to you, just don't come to the groups because that's worthless. Like, we want to give people good news, not good advice, and the good news is Jesus. So the, the good news that they need to hear in that moment is, listen, God is for you. Despite whatever you're walking through right now, Jesus is favorably disposed to you. He is gracious. We are an extension of His grace. We're here to walk with you. We're here to pray with you. Right? It's not about getting a different job, but it's about, you know, Billy Joel's heart, like, growing in the midst of that. Hey, even when he mistreats you, you have an opportunity to model the kingdom of God in the workplace. You see kind of how all these things work together. We want to give people good news. Right? Because good news is what we are made for. So we want to share good news not good advice. Um, and the truth is this, is, this is one of the most important truths about us as a church. People only change by seeing Jesus, right? We don't change by just understanding what's going on in our hearts. We don't change by learning a new set of behaviors. We change by seeing Jesus by faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says that we move from one degree of glory to another as we behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. So we want to give people Jesus. I need you to give me Jesus. Right? We don't need to just give and share good advice. We need good news. Next, we want to focus on who we are, not on who we are not. Right? You've probably been in some kind of accountability setting or some kind of small group setting and you kind of go around the circle hey how you doing reading your bible bad how you doing praying bad how you doing reaching out to other people bad and it just becomes this whole group that's focused on our all of our failures right i don't want to go to a group like that so we want as a group of people to focus on who we are not who we're not so what this sounds like and what the difference is is How does the fact that you are the beloved of God, that you are the bride of Christ, how does that impact your prayer life? See the difference between those two questions? That He loves us. That we are clothed in righteousness. Those are two different ways of approaching the same thing. And uh, one of them motivates us to want to pray and to connect with God, and the other heaps condemnation and guilt and shame. So we want to be a group of people that focus on who we are, not on who we are not. Finally, um, and and we hit this pretty hard, so we'll close with this. Um, Demonstrating the gospel is essential to proclaiming the gospel, right? No one in our city is going to care 
about any message that we have to share if they don't know that we actually care about them. So we're going to take painstaking time as individual groups to find ways to serve um, in our community. Not all of those are going to lead to verbally proclaiming the gospel, but every single one of them is a demonstration that the kingdom of God is here, right? There is value to caring for the poor. There is value to feeding someone that's hungry. Not everything has to be a bait and switch. Um, I was telling Aaron this story this week. This is at a previous church, so I get amnesty, right? I was in charge of hospitality for the church. And all I wanted to do to model the kingdom of God was give out really good snacks at the table. I was like, could we just do that, right? So I said, I, I want, this was back when, like, Frappuccinos, like, in the Starbucks thing, that was, like, a new thing, you know, in the bottle. And so we had those. And I said, let's get some really good chocolate that people could just grab on their way out. So Godiva, right? I said, let's get some Godiva. To my horror, <laughs> the next week when I walked in, there were some Godiva bars, and someone had made a little handmade sticker that said, God died for you on the Godiva bar. <laughs> and sometimes I think we think that's what it's like to proclaim the kingdom of God, that we've got to do a bait and switch, right? It's okay just to model the kingdom of God through excellence. You don't have to church it up, right? You don't have to, it's okay to offer someone a breath mint. It doesn't have to be a testament, right? I mean, all of those things are hilarious to me, but it's just a confusion that there's real value in just loving and serving people. So we want to demonstrate the gospel and we want to proclaim the gospel. Both of those things are valuable. So what we're praying for all the groups is that they just have a positive of brokenness that they are committed to praying for, to engaging in. Um, we're, in a few weeks, we're going to start a new series that's really going to help us see the needs of our city, and we're going to be able to um, pursue those things together. But all of those things are only fruitful to the degree that they are connected to Jesus who gives us life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that the gospel is bigger than we think most of the time that it has implications for all we do and how we live life. I pray that you would protect us from overemphasizing one aspect of the gospel over another. I pray that you would help us to live in the good, that you are our Savior, that you are our King, and that you are gracious towards us. I pray that that would be good news for us and for this city. In Jesus' name, amen.